This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday, 14th of September. With me today, I have Bob Holt, OBE. Bob is a serial entrepreneur and business leader. Bob is well known for building Mears Group. Mears is one of the UK's leading housing solutions providers to both public and private sectors. In conjunction with his charity work, Bob gets parachuted into difficult corporate situations, most recently turning around the cosmetic business Revolution Beauty. Bob, good morning. Good morning. Lovely to see you. And you, as ever. Let's start at the very beginning, as it's a very good place to start. How did it, how did it all start? Well, I grew up in the north of England. The accent tends to give it away. Um, my mother, who, who started in abject poverty, um, she, I don't, my late mother, I should say, she wouldn't mind me saying that, obviously had a burning desire to get away from her, her humble beginnings um, and made something of herself. Uh, met my father. Uh, we, although we won't go too deep into it, I shouldn't be called Holt. My mother was actually married to Mr. Holt when I came along. Yeah. Uh, but my father, I should have the surname Howard, my father ex-military, uh, not necessarily the most ambitious guy, but certainly uh, worked with my mother. And they bought their first grocer's shop up in Oldham. Uh, and, and don't forget, these are different times. These are pre-supermarkets. Mm-hmm. So the corner shop was the hub of the community as well as anything. And then my mother got a second shop. And, uh, you know, I, I get to my, I don't know, 10 or 11, 12. I had only one ambition then, which was to play football. Um, and at 15, I went for trials of football. I wasn't, wasn't quite good enough. Um, so that, that dream ended before it started. Uh, and therefore, I, uh, I then started as an office junior. I think they call them a management trainee these days. And uh, no qualifications, took a couple of few old levels, went to night school, started some accountancy uh, exams and then took the years to work through uh, various accounting positions Um, and get to my early 20s, my football career, at that time I'd still been playing football of course, Uh, my football career ended at quite a bad injury and so that seemed to be the catalyst for me to put all my efforts into work. At that point I can't remember being as totally committed to work as as I have become but certainly that is something that carried me through since my early 20s, early to mid-20s for the last 40-odd years. Uh, And I I got very lucky. I joined a company which was service sector, um, and I learned a work ethic, which was an incredible work ethic, which had been effectively fostered by my mother anyway. Did you have to work in the grocery shops? I did. Of course I did, yeah. Yeah, when when you... uh, if you, if for those who remember the program Open All Hours, the corner shop, that was my mother's shops, and um, you know we opened at seven or something and closed at nine in the evening, 
And before you've opened at seven, there's always a knock on the side door. Somebody who's forgotten their fire lighters or needs yeah. something. And just as if, after you've shut at nine in the evening, there's a knock on the door for something else. So do you think that sparked your interest in business? I don't know whether it sparked my uh, interest in business, but what it instilled was the need to work hard. And my mother always used to say, and I stress this with my mother, not my father. Um, my mother used to say, Robert, if you don't work hard, you won't, uh, you won't earn anything, you won't get anywhere. If you work hard, you've got a chance. Um, and, and so that was always the case. And, you know, I've often been asked, before you asked me, what did your father do for a living? And my, stand, my, my answer is, of course, he worked for my mother. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how it was. But, it, I mean, what my mother gave me was that, that incredible work ethic, which even in my late 60s, I still work harder than most people. So thank you, mother. Uh, and from there, you know, I just carried on, I suppose. The early, um, as I said... I joined this this uh, cleaning business in Manchester, and then I had two great great lucky breaks. So this is in the um, what's this? This is the early eighties, and I was then headhunted by two of the biggest entrepreneurs in the UK at the time. Today's equivalent of I suppose Branson and Sugar. I got headhunted by Michael Ashcroft, now Lord Ashcroft. Yep. And Michael um, was at that time just starting his, um, his building his businesses. He bought a, a, a public company called Hawley Group. I think it was Hawley Tents, actually, Hawley Group. And he was building service businesses. And I was finance director of a business in that sector. A mate of mine recommended me. And I was headhunted and parachuted into Michael's cleaning business as, as finance guy. And you'd done your accountancy through night school? Uh, done some. some. I, d I never qualified, but I, g I got part way there. And I never qualified, one, because I never felt I was bright enough, but Two, um, and more more importantly for me, I always seemed I could get to the answer quickly. So in an acquisition scenario, that was always important. So very quickly, I'd read a balance sheet and think, is this something we want to do? Does it integrate well? I've always had that type of personality, and it comes from my sport, I believe, uh, of being a people person. Um, even I played sport at a level, both football and cricket, at a level above my capability. And I was always skipper. I was always captain. So I must have had some leadership qualities. So I always knew who needed a kick, and I always knew who needed a cuddle very early without working at it. Because in a, in a, in a match environment in sport, whatever it is, if, if, I kick the wrong, if I kick the person who needs a cuddle and cuddle the yeah. person who needs a kick, we get the opposite reaction. Yeah. And so therefore, that, that seemed to come naturally to me. Um, and so, therefore, I, I, I went to work for Michael Ashcroft, and uh, you know, incredible hard work. I, I, th I think that the stats were something like we bought fifty odd businesses in eighteen months. You know, so I always I, I dine out on the fact I probably bought more businesses in blue collar services than people have ever dreamed of, and I still get amazed when people say they bought one business and it hasn't gone right. I say, <laughs> well, guess what? I'm still buying them, and occasionally, yeah, I don't get it right. Uh, so that was great experience. And then I got headhunted by his, uh, one of his friends, who was Tony Berry. And it was, it was the most odd scenario. At that time, I was married in the north of England, uh, doing quite well, paid quite a lot of money. My, my wife, uh, first wife, was a tax inspector, so we were doing quite well and had no kids. So we were doing quite well for ourselves. And uh, Tony recruited me and wanted me to go out to the States, which, to a lad from Oldham, uh, moving from Oldham to Manhattan and Boston, was quite a leap, um, but he saw something in me that I had never seen in me, and I went out and built a platform for Blue Arrow uh, in the mid-80s. 
and um, I was I was funnily enough I was only my, Tony Tony sadly passed away earlier this year, and I was at his funeral and David Atkins who was deputy chairman and very much a uh, a great friend and confidant uh, reminded me and I never even thought about it until that point he said don't forget Bob the first three businesses you recommended we bought and they all were successful. And so therefore, yeah. you know, again, that, that was a great tick for me in that, that time. And I came back from the US. Um, so how long were you in the US for? I was in there for a short, just, just two years, I think. Yeah. Um, came back and, um, and then sadly the whole Blue Arrow affair yep. uh, got together with, with having, having acquired manpower. Anybody closely related to, uh, to Tony was out on their ear. Um, we, I mean, often at that time it, it was it was stated that Blue Arrow created the crash. You know, it was the largest ever cash call. People forget yeah. that the largest ever cash call at the time, eight hundred and eighteen million, I seem to believe, before any privatisations. Yes. Anyway, cut a long story short, I was I was shown the door by by the manpower uh, chief executive, who then took over from t- Tony went. I went, and Tony had introduced me to to that well-known ledger-listed company called Tottenham Hotspur PLC. Yep. Uh, and so I became one of the youngest chief executives of a public company. And I have to say, it wasn't the most pleasant of times for me running uh, Tottenham as chief ex- public company of Tottenham. And I, you know, I, I, used to s- I used to say, no, I'm not a director of the football club, I'm just chief executive of a public company that happens to own a football club. Yep. And from those who... Only the Tottenham fans will probably remember, but you know, Tottenham had a collection of, of rubbish businesses that they had acquired along the way, and I just set about exiting those businesses and trying to get us to a stage. And um, what happened was clearly Tottenham didn't have the money to proceed with the strategy. Uh, firstly, uh, Robert Maxwell uh, tried to get involved, and then subsequently. Um, Terry Venables and subsequently Alan Sugar. I'd long gone by this time. I resigned, and the time I resigned, uh, so did BZW at the time of broker. So what did I do? Um, I would have been, I don't know, mid-30s by this time, young family, um, living in St Albans. What do I do? I used to, clearly, you know, I, th- I thought I was quite good at what I did at that point. Um, and my friends had started Mighty not long before. Yeah. Uh, so I joined Mighty, and I didn't want to, you know, I, th- I thought I was a bit too big to go and work for people. <clears throat> so I did a deal with Mighty, which gave me equity in, in a couple of their subsidies. Uh, so I took equity instead of, uh, instead of a, a salary. And that performed incredibly well, Mighty, in its early days. And uh, I think, I don't know, five or six-fold growth in that, which then gave me some currency. I'd moved about that time to the Cotswolds. Am I right in thinking Mighty stands for Management Incentive Through Equity? It stands for Management Incentive Through Investment Equity. Yes, I may have got the I. And excuse the language, any ladies who end up listening to this, but David Telling's uh, maxim was always, if you've got your balls on the line, then you're going to yeah. perform a lot better. Yeah, that I was th- always there. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think probably more, the more open view would be skin in the game these days, wouldn't it? Yes, but I was paraphrasing Mr. Telling. Yeah, indeed. Skin in the game, is, indeed it is. Yeah, the more corre- corrective, uh, correct terminology. Um, and in the early days, it was hugely successful because what you did have is a bunch of painters and cleaners and engineers and, uh, and I don't know, every other soft service um, who were willing to have skin in the game, 
who were willing to get a mortgage on their house because they had a spare 30 grand and to form, you know, XYZ Cleaning East Anglia Limited with Mighty owning 55 or 60 percent and another putting his mortgage, putting the house on, on the line for 30 or 40 percent. And it was hugely successful in its early days. And I, as I say, I was a beneficiary of that. I did a couple of years with my friends at Mighty. And then uh, I was living just outside Cheltenham in the Cotswolds. And I got um, an inkling because my, what I'd been doing at Mighty, I was running the whole maintenance operation as, as chief exec. And I got this, I got approached by Grant Thornton saying, we, we are representing a small private maintenance contractor called Mears. Would you be interested in having a discussion with a bit? And it was from Grant Thornton in Cheltenham, surprisingly. So I just I just assumed that was their national uh, operation, and uh, you know I didn't I didn't know where the business was based. And amazing, it was based twenty miles south of Cheltenham. And uh, so I went to see. I had exited. I was exiting Mighty, um, and I went to see Mike Till, who owned um, Mears, who built it up from nothing with with Peter Mears. At that time, it was nine million revenues. Wow. It had made. 100 grand but it was a private business so you know in the nicest way uh, Mike had, uh, had done all right out of it as well and it became evident within about 15 to 20 minutes of meeting Mike that him and I shared very very similar backgrounds and and likes completely different uh, levels of skill um, and Mike, Mike just basically said look I've had enough and he was having a bit of a um, not, not quite a meltdown but you know really panicking and he saw that for the first time the business had started building up debt because it had expanded out of its uh, natural territory in Gloucestershire. Uh, his parents lived in the cottage at the back of the property which was held in Mike's pension. So Mike saw a inevitable pack of cards going where you know everybody would be skinned, etc. And I said, well, what? So he, he was looking for net asset value half a million quid. I said, well, I'm not going to do that, Mike, because you know, I, I don't know what the net asset value is. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you 50 grand for 25%. I'll come in and we'll take it public. AIM had just started the June before. This is this is February 96. And AIM, yeah. I think, had started in June 95. Yeah. And uh, Mike leant across the table. Great. See you tomorrow sort of thing. Had a conversation. Um, and what became very, very evident. So I, I literally went in there the day after. And of course, I'd been used to fairly sizable businesses, and I sh uh, you, you very quickly realise that you know there's no point telling people, "Well, I used to work here. I used to do that." Not interested. Yeah. It's basically skin in the game, isn't it? It's, it's you know, come on, I'm not interested, mate. We, we're not going to give you a guarantee on this. We're not going to do. It. So you learn very quickly having to hide and, uh, and 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 actually not hide, sorry, and come up and actually make sure that you know, you are you are performing. So anyway. What happened very quickly was the debt went away because I just turned up collecting cash into a, an art form. And what what Mike had was a very profitable small oh. business. And so um, we did the interns to June. I just only started in February. And we made a couple hundred grand in the first six months. So I said to, to him, look, we can float this. On the back of these June interns, I reckon we can float this. And at that time, I dealt with the guys up in Manchester, uh, Ian Kerry and his partners. And 
and they agreed that we could float. So we, we, we went, we came to market in October 96, a few months after I'd, I'd been involved. On the back of those interims, we said we'd make forward 50 in the year, whatever it was. And we floated at a valuation of 3.6 million. On the day of the float, Mike leant across the table to Mike tailed it in quotes the owner, uh, former owner, and uh, gave me an envelope. What's this, Mike? It's your cheque for 50 grand back. <laughs> so my cost of entry into Mears was zero. Um, so anyway, and that's been the measure of Mike. And amazingly, although Mike uh, left Mears probably 18 months later and went offshore to save his tax, and I stayed on for 20-odd years, and it's fair to say I've made substantially more than Mike out of this whole thing. Uh, Mike and I are still great friends, and we speak two to three times a week, and I'm notionally chairman of one of his private businesses still. Anyway, um, and off we went, and Mears, Mears was an absolute classic, turn a small private business, professionalise some of the services, bring on board a good management team, and hey, presto, off you go. First appointment was David Robertson, who was the finance director uh, of one of the subsidiaries of Mears. David, a brilliant um, chartered accountant, Scottish chartered accountant, I should add. Um, David won the awards as best finance director of a listed company under whatever it was, 100 million, whatever it was at the time. Excellent. And David and I had, had a per we, we were seen as being the perfect foil. Um, David being a very tight ass Scotsman and me being having that entrepreneurial drive to take it on to the next stage. Uh, but David and I had a fundamental agreement from day one that we would never try and convince the other one that we should do something. So in other words, if, if we looked at an acquisition, David said, I don't think we should do it. I didn't waste my time trying to convince him to do it. Right, let's move on then because we're too busy. And we were hugely successful. And, uh, you know, first year, I think we posted 450,000 and then we went to 620,000 profit. And then we, and I think it would have been year two and a bit. Um, we, we had the broker Fisk and Company were, were, were broker to us when we floated. And um, Clive Harrison, who, who, who was the owner of Fisk, came to me probably 18 months in and said, Bob, you are a proper business and we need to get you a proper broker. And they got us a proper broker. And I think our share price was 13p. Mm -hmm. We floated 10 pence, we're at 13p, 30% growth. I'm happy. Yeah, exactly. yeah, who can complain two years in? And the first note they wrote was at 20p. And I thought, we'll never get to 20p. And I was right, because we went straight to 22p. <laughs> and and then it, the story carried on. And again, yes, of course, over 20-odd years, the stories, as you can imagine, I could speak all day about what we what we achieved at Mears. But what fundamentally we did at Mears was we professionalised a service into the public sector which wasn't very professional. We all came at it not as builders but as professional managers, and we professionalised it. And I was chairman and chief exec for a large, large majority of that time, with a strong reputation of managing, you know, disparate workforces. So managing a blue collar, disparate workforce is not something that's too easy. It's not. So, it's something that, it's a thing that people take for granted. Oh well, you've got. But you know, when you build a business up to ten thousand people, as we did, you know, it's not easy. Controlling it, we were very lucky because we were hands-on financial managers. So finance, finance from day one was always crucial to us. And in the public sector, if you don't keep, you know, keep don't, don't keep your hand on the on the tiller and on the, on the till to make sure that you're getting your cash in, it very quickly goes out of kilter. Anyway, the story of me is, uh, I think people know, 
uh, who followed me and followed that story. So what do you think would be the key learnings from your time at Mears? I think stick to your knitting, uh, do what you're good at, make sure that... Um, I used to always say I was good at making things boring, and for boring men, do the work, send an invoice and collect the cash. So it was ever that, I think. It was, you know, hire the right people, obviously. Hire people who've got the, the opposite, uh, that compensate for your weaknesses. Um, you know, when you're building a business the size I had, without a team of good operators, good financiers, and good developers, you know, it would never have, it never got anywhere. Um, so just having the right team along with you and, and obviously making sure the catch is there. And, and how big was Mears at the peak? Well... I told you that I got my shares, A, for nothing, but at 10p. And I sold the majority of my stake at five and a half quid. So a 55 bagger isn't bad, I think. I don't think there have been many of those. We were, of course, the most successful AIM flotation over five years and ten years. Uh, we won every accolade on AIM yeah. in the early times. Um, and yeah, and today, Mears is hugely successful. It's had its, it's, had its uh, uh, issues in terms of the city not quite liking it, moving to care and then out of care and moving into then the um, the um, refugee uh, position. But Mears today is a billion two, a billion three revenues and making 40 odd million. It's a fantastic business. And when you when I, when I reiterate, you know, that it came to market at 3.6 million, the large majority of that has been organic. Yes. We have not bought most of that revenues. And I say we because I still... See, see it affectionately as, as, a, as a we, and I mean, although I'm no longer involved, I still see it as, as being part of the success story. So, great business, great leader. I mean, David Miles, who, who took it on, took the leadership on after I stepped down, has worked with me for 35 years. David's an excellent operator. He is, you know, he knows where every nut and bolt is. He knows the dial, the speed it should go at, and he's been a fantastic operator of that business. And it's actually grown, I think, more since I left than it Probably well, certainly, in the latter years of my my time there. So d excellent to me. Is what did that do for me? Well, it gave me a financial currency, but it gave me a reputation and currency to go and do other things. And I was then headhunted into a business called well, at the time Lake House, which had come to market and immediately failed. It's uh, it posted its first year numbers three or four months after listing, and and within three or four further weeks posted a profits warning followed by a second profits warning, followed by a third profits warning. And shareholders approached me, principal shareholder approached me, would I be willing to go in and sort it out? I don't think so. Why would I want to do that? Uh, and a negotiation ensued, and they ended up having to pay me a lot of money to go in and, and sort it out. Great business again. Um, what One thing I learned from, from the SureServe uh, experience, we, sorry, we, we changed the name to SureServe from Lakers. Which has recently been bid for as well. Which, which has recently been uh, taken off the market by private equity, yeah. yeah. So it was taken off at 125 pence, I think. I got involved when it was 27 pence, I think. And I exited at 75 pence or something like that. So yeah, hugely successful. Uh, the most successful was the bank were, were in the hole for 50 million. A, a good lesson there that, that again, it, it may not work for everybody, but... I think we owed, we owed the bank forty-eight million literally the day I was appointed, and I went to the bank and said, "Look," and they'd said, "Of course, no more money." I I went to the bank and said, "Look, I really would like you to give me an extra million five. Uh, don't think so, Bob. Well, why? Because I want to pay a divvy. I want to pay a dividend, and you know, I want to pay a dividend because I want 
people to understand that I'm very confident about sorting this business out. And if I paid an immediate dividend, it will show the support of the board and me that, my word, the, 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 this guy thinks he's going to sort this out. So they did. They gave me an extra million five. And I think when I left two and a bit years ago, two and a half years ago, um, the bank owed us 20 million. So we'd had the 50 million back and I think we had 20 million on deposit. A great turnaround. We got it out of a construction business which was at best, run at best naively and at worst, <coughs> something we don't want to get into, but you know we got rid of that quickly. Just prior to Carillion going, so the timing was, was good. And just concentrated on those those consulting services, blue collar consulting services around energy, um, gas, um, smart metering, uh, waste. So all good businesses, all with people in them with an entrepreneurial flair and spirit. So again, it worked very well, and I stepped off that. And um, coming more recently up to date, yes, I uh, I then got helicoptered into. Revolution Beauty, which was literally, literally um, a year ago. And um, as often happens, you know, you start conversations about these things and, Bob, we really need somebody like you to come in and sort this out. You know, it's not, not a great start. It's just been suspended. So it's been suspended, I think, literally almost a year to today. Yeah. Almost. Um, and it needs somebody like you to come in. Um, I had just stepped, I just stepped off a plane in South Africa with my foundation, which I think we'll talk about absolutely in, in, in a moment. I just stepped off a plane, and I got a call from the bank saying, "Would you come and meet the bank on Tuesday?" So, well, I've just arrived in South Africa. I told you I was going to be here for two weeks, so I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem coming back, but I'm not coming back for a chat. For a chat, if I'm coming back, I'm coming back to do it. The first call I had, the first discussion I had with the, the lawyers and bankers was, Bob, you don't have any beauty experience. And my reply, my typical northern abrasive manner was, no, and I don't have any experience of losing 450 million quid of the value, because the business had lost 450 million quid of the value from a July, from a July IPO, to a to a, a years a, a year on suspension. And the banker nodded and, yeah, 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 I suppose you're right. I said, well, I do have experience of making 450 million a la millions. Anyway, uh, I was appointed and um, fascinating sector, I have to say. Beauty, per se, is a great sector. And, and for those who don't, are dismissive of it, spend a bit more time looking at it. The fundamentals are fantastic. High, low, low direct costs, you know, lots of marketing in the middle and, you know, great opportunities in a massive market, you know growing at above inflation for the next five years. The, what had happened was, it, it had come to market on the back of more of an online presence than actually in reality it had. It had an online presence that, that had grown during the pandemic. But fundamentally, business was, was always going to be 70% direct to, to uh, re through retail, global, and 30% online. Anyway, what had gone wrong? You had a you had um, two founders or a founder principally, who was uh, interested in growth, and you know he won't be the first entrepreneur, first founder, to build a brand on growth, but sadly the profits didn't follow, and you know too much product development, and 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 we suddenly end up in a situation where the banks are not very happy, 
shareholders clearly are totally unhappy because they had lost the majority of the well, they had lost their 450 million. <coughs> so it, it needed some some very heavy surgery. And I came in, you know, in my late 60s with a with 300 plus Gen Z young young women. And I, I, I used You'd to have been in your element, Bob. Well, I, I don't know about that because, of course, as you say, we are in different times now, Nick. Um, but I used to I used to laugh because I used to sit in the boardroom going, going through my work day with a with a door open and and acro walking across the door every every minute of the day would be young women going to and fro, and I always used to say they must look in the in the border and think how the hell do we end up with him, <laughs> and I think eventually, after a few months they got to understand what my style was all about. I had to remind them very early that I was only there to do one thing, which was to ensure that they could pay their mortgages in three months, six months, nine months. And that penny very quickly dropped, and they saw that this wasn't an ego from me. It was a a, a desire to get us relisted because that was the fundamental requirement, and to build a business on sensible grounds. We got lucky in um, in one way in um, in Revolution because the bank, one of the banks, were the previous bank who had rescued Insurserve, so they I ticked their box uh, very early. That I think they knew well. They knew my type of personality. They knew I wouldn't give up, and they knew I'd just get on with it. But but fascinating um, ordeal, really, because every day I'd be talking to bankers, lawyers, regulators, shareholders. And so for the first three or four months, genuinely, I spent less than an hour a day on the business. And of course, we then got through various things. We got the initial, there was a financial investigation. We got that, got that published. We then had a few court cases going on. We then had... Other other issues, and we were we were looking to get the accounts file for February 22. Don't forget, this would be this would be early 23, and we were tr we were trying to get the accounts file for the year ending Feb 22. So that's why we were suspended because they hadn't been filed. Just getting those done, and we got them done on the the deadline of all deadlines. You know, at five to seven in the morning, and. Um, it was fair to say that was a huge relief to everybody. So we got those published. Uh, the following day, we were relisted. Uh, there was a lot of jiggery-pokery around, you know, AGM voting, and, of course, Boohoo had built up their state by then and wanted to, to get control. Uh, and a lot, you know, it was, it, I think it was daily fun for the city because um, some of the, the press that was going on was, um, was great fun. I, I had great pleasure reading uh, Oliver Shaw putting out that in his Sunday column saying that, it's a fight between two bald men over a comb, which I thought was a great comment. I really did, and uh, I have the pleasure of lunch with uh, with him coming up, so be able to share share stories with him. Um, eventually, it was obvious that because of the voting position around the shareholdings, we had two founders with 15.6 each. So you add those two together, 31.2. They were never going to vote for me. Obviously, they wanted me gone. And then you had Boohoo's 26%. So you had a 57% share against me any any AGM, any general meeting. So almost an impossible scenario to get um, to get and win win the day. So uh, Boohoo were aggressively trying to get rid of me. That was fine, not a problem. And as I said to the board, if I'm the, the sacrificial lamb just to make sure that this business moves forward, then if that's the case, that's what we'll do. So we sat down, had a negotiation, and that was that. So fundamentally, I left. I was well rewarded for my ten and, ten and a bit months. Would I prefer to be there? You bet I would. I'd prefer to have been there. 
and to carry on and get the business to where it was. Um, we had, just before I left, recruited a uh, chief uh, marketing officer, Ali Holzer, excellent uh, appointment, and they have subsequently made an appointment of a chief exec, ex-Walmart. So again, I think the business is set fur. Alistair Chairman seems to be a good guy, and that's fine. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm still a shareholder, so uh, you know, I see the business prospering. Um, I suppose where to next for me, it's, it's quite interesting, really. Yeah. Uh, I, um, yeah, I still have that desire to work hard. I still have the desire to get involved in things. I've worked every day since I was 16, so I'm not allowed to go and sit do around. You, do you miss Mears? Do I miss Mears? No, um, I don't miss anything, actually, because if, if you look back at what I do is I move on. So I sold all my shares in Mears. I left Shearsurf. I sold all my shares yeah. in, in Shearsurf. I will eventually sell all my shares in Revolution because I move on. And, you know, I remember when I got divorced and you know, I used to go back to see my youngest son in Cheltenham and my driver used to say, does it feel odd? Sat at the gates to your house here in the Cotswolds. So, not really. Now I've moved on. And I suppose, I don't know why. I suppose but life does move, doesn't it? Life well, does I, I, move I, I've always been able to compartmentalise things. Yeah. So do I miss Mears? No, I'd love to get in there now. I would love to get back into Mears and, and drive that onto the next stage, as I would with Sureserve or with Revolution, yeah, because I think I've still got things to offer. So I'm currently looking at, um, at getting involved in a small listed company, listed in the UK, uh, but over with overseas subsidiaries. Um, I am... There'll be lots of listeners trying to guess which one that is. Well, again, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. It'll, it'll either happen or not. They've, clearly, I'm not the only player in town on that one. Uh, I'm just about to invest in a small uh, business. During my uh, time between Shearserve and Revolution, I invested in um, a few businesses. So I chair a um, gas and energy business over in Bristol. I, I'm a director and investor in an energy consulting business in Cheltenham, which is where I used to live. And I've got various other things that I go on, including one in the States in Houston. Um, along the way, I, you know, I've, I've probably picked up, well, I'm still chairman of Totally, which is struggling yep. because of the NHS spending. And I've picked up a, a few things along the way and you know, moved on with them. So, as I say, if it's hard work, I knew, I always knew if it was only ever going to be hard work, I knew I'd be successful. And that's how I see life. If it's, if it's down to hard work, then never a problem. Clearly, if it, if it requires some, some, absolute expertise in a sector, I'll hire it if I don't have it. And, you know, people used to say when I was building mirrors that, you know, I, I have always, I've always maintained that I'm at best Marmite in city terms. On one hand, I'm respected for what I did at Mears and Shearsev and latterly, hopefully, Revolution. But on the other hand, I think some of the, uh, some of the advisors and some of the, um, the uh, investment managers don't like my sort of approach on asking them which school they went to, didn't they teach you how to add up at Oxbridge? Because, you know, I can bloody see that that Connaught balance sheet is a pile of something else. Why can't you type conversation? So I think at best Marmite, uh, but I think as most people who know me know that this is about getting value for shareholders. And, you know, on, on the revolution thing, the, 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 the strange thing, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't and still almost can't quite get my head around it, was that I was accused by um, by the activist of 
belittling them in an RNS. And I said, well, unless, unless we went to different schools, that's my job. My job is to avoid selling a public company to a 26% shareholder without him buying it. So I have to do everything in my power to try and make him either buy it or go away. And you know they, they don't quite seem to do that. And what what has been what has been the comment fundamentally was I poked the bear, meaning the the, the guy who's chairman of um, or the, the major holder in um, in Boohoo. I don't understand it. I was doing my job. What this is not personal. As I said earlier, you move on. It's not personal. It's business. Yeah. And you just get on with it. So I think. Watch this space for my next announcement. A couple of things that I'm going to be doing. Um, and hopefully there'll be support out there to come with me. And then before we move on to the foundation, are there any sort of key themes across all your businesses you've been involved in that you can pull out to, to have been a success? Or you know, is, there, is there any... Team building. To, I, you know, I was Entrepreneur of the Year on the Stock Exchange in 2005. I've never seen myself as an in quotes an entrepreneur because I've always seen me a builder of teams. Now, if that's what that's what entrepreneurs do, that's fine. Then I am, <coughs> but you know, I don't. I, I tend to be risk averse. I don't like debt. I don't like it personally. I don't like it corporately. Um, you know, I'm all about building teams. Often, well, more often than not, I'm the leader of that team. But you've got to take those teams on a journey. You t- yeah, and you've got to, they've got to believe in you, and that's why in in the early ma- days of Mears, I was able to recruit David from Mears, David David Miles. And David Robertson from Mears. Both of them came from less money they were on at Mears. And prospects were huge opportunities if we got it right, but not very good if we got it wrong. So I've always had people. And I remember in the early days, some city fund manager said to me, I'm not sure I'd like to work for you, Bob. You know, you come across a bit too aggressive. And I said to him, well, that's fine, mate, because I've got a long line of people who do want to come with me. Because, you know, any of my businesses, anybody who's ever worked for me will tell you, Short lines of communication, quick decision making, not go to the committee. Not yeah. So are we doing this or not? Get on with it. Are we going to do it? Yes. Have we fully studied it? Yes. If we make a decision collectively and it fails, we're all, we've all failed. Not, not you, not because you brought it. We collectively took that decision. Move on. It's not a problem. And in me, as it was always, we're too busy. I used to say to people, look, mate, it's not a problem that you've got, a, you've got an ego. But whilst you're preening yourself in the mirror, we're outside on a bus which says strategy. Either get on the bus or you'll miss the bus. Not a problem, but you'll be left behind. So come on, we're far too busy. So, you know, Mears never took a government grant, never really looked for any support because we were always too busy. And we were in an incredible, incredible sector which was growing and, you know, five and a half billion primary market, which had no market leadership until we, we started building it. So, yeah, I think just building teams. And then can we talk about your foundation? If you like, we can, yeah. So I, I, um, uh, for those who, those who know me well know that I was a great friend of Bobby Moore, the England soccer captain. Um, Bobby died well, 26 years ago, and his widow, uh, Stephanie, formed the Bobby Moore Bell Cancer Charity um, and wanted to do some volunteer trips to Brazil. So I was involved in those, sending people out on them, getting involved, doing all that sort of stuff. And Bob and the, the charity was subsumed within cancer research very quickly because it's a fantastic charity. And if you look at the statistics on on bowel cancer in, amongst males, the statistics, principally because of the work that Bobby Moore Bowel Cancer Fund and, of course, Cancer Research 
have done. Fantastic uh, recovery rates. Anyway, so Stephanie formed that, subsumed them within Guns Research. They were not interested, really, in these little trips to Brazil with 40, 50 people raising, I don't know, 10, 20 grand for the charity. They weren't interested. So I decided to do it myself. And uh, I formed my own foundation, which was the Footprints Foundation. And I went initially to Brazil. I then went to Ecuador. I then went to India. I then went to Sri Lanka. I then went to Belarus. All areas of you know need and conflict. And then into South Africa. And um, the moment I landed in South Africa on my first our first project, I knew that I'd landed in where I wanted to be. You know the people. Uh, were I want I connected very quickly with them. Um, you know the statistics that people don't actually listen to is you know 15 million adults uh, died of AIDS in South Africa. So you had you had a whole generation gone. So when I was when I was there starting my foundation in South Africa, it's rare I would be meeting the parent of a child. I was usually meeting the grandparent of a child, or in some cases the child themselves. And uh, we adopted one orphanage. One became three. Three became five. We're currently, I think, at eight. Uh, and every year I take about 50 volunteers from the UK. And we do something either, build a project. So this year uh, we are building a school, an extension to a school, quite a big one. Uh, I, was I was reviewing them, uh, the, the photographs this morning where we've engaged with local builders to build the first the platform and and get the bricks built up to window level, and then our guys will go out and finish the build, internal and external. Um, so we're doing that. We are joined this year again by a team of ophthalmic surgeons from the northwest of England who come out and do eye tests. Um, one of my proudest moments was about four years ago, we restored the eyesight to two seven-year-old kids who had contracted cataracts. Uh, of course, they get dirt in their eye, they got no treatment, they got no solutions got no not ability to sort it out and basically lost, lost their sight. And we were very quickly enabled to uh, restore the eyesight to two little kids. So fantastic. Um, and they're going out again this year. I've then got a team going out from Revolution Beauty. So, you know, we got 50, 50, just over 50 people going, a bunch of builders and or uh, non-technical people. And we'll do various things like we built, we'll finish the build on the school, obviously. We'll go out and do the eye tests, obviously. We'll go out and do, we'll go painting local schools, we'll do a feeding program. During the pandemic, we continued to provide a feeding program for up to 500 kids a day. Now, it sounds grand, it, it costs no money. For those people who've gone to rural South Africa, and we are as rural in South Africa as you would ever be. We are in south of Joburg, just off the Golden Highway. I mean, there have been times where I have been out there and I've been the only white face for three weeks. Um, great people wonderful people in terms of uh, welcoming our support and you know I do less in it now than I used to do I mean the trustees used to shout at me for you know I had a driver at home in England and I used to go out to South Africa driving a bus round and doing all that the nonsense why do you do it Rob it's nonsense so we talked about you know sustainability and you know having the ability to carry on so uh, I do a lot less in it now it's fair to say it's self-sufficient I funded it all from day one we don't ask for anybody for any money. Uh, a few years ago, some great friends of mine said they got sick of hearing this nonsense about my foundation in Africa, so they were going to come out to have a look at what I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we were having a beer at the end of the first night, one of them said, I can't believe what you do here. Here's 20 grand. Which, 
you know, it goes to, it's about a quarter of a million of value in South Africa. And the other guy said, does that mean I've got to give him 20 grand? Yes, sadly it does. So that was a great trip for the foundation. And as I say, money goes a long way there. So again, we're out there from the 7th of October to the 28th of October. Um, and we'll achieve quite a lot. And we'll be touching lots of local local people. So I think that's, that's it. I've got a very, very busy schedule because I've, um, for the rest of this year, because I've been you know, locked away in revolution for, for the best part of a year. You know, some of the things that I, I usually get around to touch and be involved in, I haven't managed to. So, so a, a sort of busy end to the year for me. No, truly incredible. Bob, as my regular listeners know, I like to close with three questions. So if I can take one at a time. Your greatest inspiration or mentor? I, yeah, I would struggle to say that. I mean, I, I, again, I've always been a big Churchill fan. So, uh, you know, I tend to look at that, that strong leadership. I don't, I don't know too many great uh, business leaders. I, d I tend to stay away from them. I, um, I'm not, you know, I don't have much of an ego. As I was reminded many years ago, we've all got an ego, Bob. Uh, so it's not a, not a crime, but yeah. So I'm, I, th I think mine's fairly well controlled. I think anybody who goes out there and and builds something and and works at it and and has success deserves great credit. And I look at some of these young entrepreneurs who start things. Yeah. Credible, and the opportunities there, you know, especially online. So I think you know, I'm, I'm I have a lot of people out there, early mentors. You know, the first guy I ever worked for, you know, I went from going from a trial at football to an interview to be an office junior. He's only interested in what position did I play, how good were you, right, okay, start tomorrow, and then you know, from those early days, you know, he he, he would get me f painting filing cabinets if we were quiet in the office, great things. And if you looked at now. You know, and 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 the, the company secretary gave, gave me a pile of pencils to sharpen. I think if I asked somebody in the office to sharpen a load of pencils for me today, they'd probably tell me to go forth and multiply. I suspect. So I think these these are all. You could say the accent tends to give it, don't you? I've always felt that I always know where my feet are, and they're very firmly on the ground. They're not up in the air. So I think any mentorship. My mother was my yeah, great, greatest mentor, so that's good. And then a book which has inspired you. Yeah, well, I'm an avid reader, so I, I, I tend to I read mean, you can books. have more than one. Yeah, well, I, I have loads of them. Um, yeah, I'm a big reader of uh, crime fiction, so I, I, I read a lot of that. Peter James, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm proud to call a friend, and he's been hugely successful. But any business bio that, you know, inspires people, I think, is right for me. You know, I think Tom Bauer tends to write most of the, you know, investigative business journals, so I... I I, I do like his novels. I think the his, his books are great. I mean, is there a book in Robert Holt? <laughs> Some of my journalist friends say say I need to write a book because of my experiences. You know, if you just mention the names I've mentioned on here, um, I started writing two books. I started writing a novel which is city based. It didn't get very far, and I've started writing a book which is a chapter on the 10 most influential people I've been in touch with over yeah. my 60 years. The, the, funnily enough, the one I, uh, I couldn't stop writing about was Bobby Moore because I was very close to Bob and, and the public persona of Bob on certain things, for me, is alien to, to the Bob I knew. So I, you know, I, I couldn't stop writing about the great side of things about Bobby because he was an absolute gentleman, absolute gentleman. And, uh, you know, great fun, great friend to have. And, of course, you were there with an icon. Yeah. You know, but he was a great, great man. 
Um, so again, a collection of books, I would say. No, not one. And then what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career to follow in your footsteps? Well, I'm not sure you want to follow in my footsteps. I think uh, if I had my time again, would I be different? I'd probably not. But I think qualifying what you're good at, so you know, get a professional qualification because you know, times are more different than they were yes. when I was growing up. Yep. So I think you need to do that. And accountancy is a great place to start, I have to say. I think you know, if you look at most of the great, well, pe most successful people, they have become, uh, they, they've come from an accounting background, so that, I would certainly do that. Stick to your knitting, be honest to yourself, you know, and never never sit there and take, take nonsense from people. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, looking back from 60-odd years of age to somebody, to somebody who's 20-odd years of age, and I've got, you know, I've got five kids, so, you know, just trying to see them. And, you know, I'm immensely proud of all of them, and they are so different. I mean, I've got an equities trader, I've got a wealth manager, I've got a corporate financier. Sounds I've like you've got your own brokership. I've got, a, I've got a health and safety officer, and I've got a training officer. And they're so different. And just, you know, I'm so, but I'm so proud of every one of them. Fundamentally, why fundamentally? My three sons from my, my first marriage, absolute polar opposites. Complete different values at, on every level. And... I'm so proud of them because they've stuck to it. You know, I didn't stipulate what they wanted to do. I was lucky enough to be able to make a settlement on them early on. Didn't decide, didn't tell them what to do, how to do it. Get on with it. As long as you're happy, I'm happy. So I think you know, stick to your knitting. Be good, be good to yourself, and always look after people. Brilliant. And family is important. That makes a lot of sense. How can listeners get in touch with you? Oh, I'm on every social media platform. I think. Well, I'm certainly on. Um, I'm on uh, LinkedIn. Get me on LinkedIn. Mike. It's funny because I've always been open. You know, people used to say, why do you post your email address and your phone number on all public documents? Why wouldn't I? Well, aren't you worried that people get hold of you? Well, why that's would I be? That's the point. Yeah, why would I be? I, I mean, I can look back on, on some things in early days of Mears, and you can imagine. I remember getting a call from an old, an old gentleman. He was obviously an old gentleman, uh, and he, he rang up, and you could tell from his voice, Mr. Holt, I'm a shareholder in Mears. Yes, all right, sir. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, would you call yourself an ambitious company? Well, I think I would, yes, yes. He said, I've just got your latest newsletter. Yes, sir. He said, there's a picture of you on the front page with six vans. Do you think that's ambitious? I thought, he, yes, you've got a point, sir, actually. <laughs> and he said, what? Your private shows and retail show, would you say they're probably older like me? I said, yes, I probably would. He said, why don't you have a larger print than not small print? And I thought, you're learning something every day. Exactly right. So, yeah, of course, exactly I right. think. Bob, this has been absolutely marvellous. Thank you very much for your time. Good to speak to you. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.